um, I have learned that I want to act like a Christian in all spaces and that it's really important on social media because I am not a disembodied head. I am a real person. And all of those people I'm interacting with are real people made in the image of God. And we need to treat them as such. Welcome to the Pocket Pulpit Podcast. Uh, I am Hector Martinez. I'm one of your co-hosts. And I'm here along with my other half, my other co-host, Sarah Kinzer. Hey, hey. Hey, I said your last name this time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> friends don't say friend's last name, but fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, today we've got a friend with us, Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Hello. Hello. And just call me Beth. Okay. Perfect. All right. Well, Beth is an accomplished professor and historian at Baylor University and an author. And her most recent book is entitled The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Hmm. Well, Beth, it's so it's so great to have you here on the, the pocket pulpit. And so uh just gonna dive right in. So who yeah. who is Beth? Like what what is your community? Who's your community? What are you into? Uh, you know. just, <laughs> oh just gosh. A brief. You know, I'm a pretty I'm a pretty um typical academic. I'm a medieval scholar. Um, so I got into medieval history really at a young I actually started off as a classics major at Baylor and then became a medievalist. Uh, because there was more sources. And anyway, and I've always loved history. I I was a journalist uh, in high school and almost became a journalism major, but decided that I needed to know more about history before I could write stories about people. So I got into history to do that. And so I, you know, I still, the things that I loved then are still things that I love now and that keep me motivated. Um, you know, I still love reading stories about people and hearing stories about people. And so I'm a very avid reader, read all the time, um, which is, it's a good profession for me, but I try really hard to read, to keep fiction around. And so actually right now I'm reading the haunting of Hill house, which I've never read before. Mm. And I, I like Gothic, um, and horror, you know, not really horror movies, but I'll read it and especially classic. So I'm reading the haunting of Hill house and that's actually pretty good. So uh, it's a great, great story. So I like things like that. My um, husband and I met at Baylor and uh, we are both Star Trek fans and Star Wars fans. And we both came to that separately and then married each other, which means our house is full of things like Star Wars rugs and R2-D2 Instapots and all sorts of things like that. So, you know, that's, and our two kids, um, one of the earliest differentiations we made sure they knew was the difference between the Star Trek Enterprise and all of the, you know, the ships in Star Wars. And so those were very important distinctions um, for our children. So that might tell you a little bit about us. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, no, that's great. I I love the idea of an R2-D2 Instapot, so. Oh, I love my R2-D2 Instapot, yeah. yeah. Where yeah. do you find them? Um, Williams and Sonoma. Oh. 
There we go. Yeah, it was my Christmas. It was, you know, they make really good Star Wars things and they actually, they work pretty well too. You know, that's the other thing. And so, you know, I've got, so my husband, he'll, he'll get me thing and they have a, they have a really consistent Star Wars, um, you know, they do different Star Wars gadgets. So Hmm. there you go. Nice. Hashtag not sponsored. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, I was completely off it. I got nothing from it. Um, So. No, that's great. Uh, so, Beth, where if people are, are looking to, you know, they listen to this episode, they want to get to know you more. What platforms are you on and what are your preferred platforms? Yeah. So um, I'm on I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I'm the least present on Facebook. Facebook's probably my least favorite platform. You can find me there and I post things occasionally. Um but I'm much more active on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, Twitter, I'm on pretty regularly. And Instagram too. I'm not on Instagram every day, but I'm on Instagram every week. Um, Instagram's probably my favorite platform because it's the, the calmest and the mild. You just post pictures and you just get to go and see people's pictures. So I actually really like Instagram because it's, it's very peaceful. Um, but Twitter's fun. And Twitter is interesting. And I know that's part of our conversation today is what Twitter has done, you know, sort of thing. So Twitter's, I guess, in the sense of the usefulness, Twitter has been the best platform for me. Yeah. So speaking of Twitter, yeah, Twitter this week, there's so there was a lot of hubbub over this article and I don't want to bring too much, oh you know, gosh, I don't want to point gosh. it out. Yeah. Um, and by the time- That's why um, I did it, tweet it. Yeah. There might be another 17 articles that create a hubbub, right? Yeah. Um, but the the tagline that or the the info that they put with the article said some of Satan's best work is accomplished by women talking to women in the floating world of disembodied souls on the internet. And yes. so I think someone somewhere is getting nervous. Oh yes. Like it can't be denied that social media is changing the game for women in the church. And if there has been a shift, I want to hear a little bit about what we're shifting away from, because there are some people, there are people who have come up in the tradition that I'm in who find it unusual to think that a woman would be denied a voice somewhere, right? particularly in the church. There are also people who are in the tradition that I have been previously who would say, I absolutely know what that is, but I thought I was alone in it. Right. So can you give us a little picture of what where the church has been with women as far as denying their voice or or like the title of book says sub, subjugating them. Yeah, the subjugation of women. So um the history of Christianity is a history of um of the subordination of women. And that doesn't mean that that is what God intended. I think that is what humans have carried to this because patriarchy is a human tradition and it has been a part of the church because it's a part of human culture. Um, The sort of impulse to uh, set ourselves as better than someone else and to create hierarchies. I mean, this is the part of what humans have done throughout history. So patriarchy is part of that. And I talk about the origins of it and so forth in the book, which, um, you know, I won't spend a lot of time here, but in even traditions, even church traditions that have are, have been affirming women in ministry for quite a while now, what you will still find in those traditions is you will find that it's harder for women to not maybe get ordained, but to be able to get sustaining 
positions within those churches to be hired by churches, um, actually to be hired at the same type of positions as men. Oftentimes what you find in some of these traditions is women are hired in the smaller churches and the more out of the way places and um, not in some of the more prominent places within these traditions. And so you still find a disparity um, even within traditions that have been ordaining women for a while, you still find a disparity um, between women's work and men's work. And this, of course, is greatly exacerbated as we move into more conservative traditions that deny women the ability to ordain. Um, and sometimes that means women can't do anything at all from a teaching level. Sometimes that means that they can only be, that they always have to be under the authority of a man. Um, so, you know, different interpretations of that. But what it, what it, what we have with the, with church history is we have a tradition of gatekeeping by men that um, has, kept women very clearly has impeded women's ability to reach ordination um, and reach positions um, at the same level of men and with as with women being able to be you know essentially be equitable in the numbers that are in and and some might argue that this is because women don't want to do this but the evidence suggests otherwise. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at seminaries, if you look at women in religion programs and so forth, I mean, that we're equal numbers with men, sometimes more. And so it's not desire. It seems to be the ability to get hired um, in these traditions, which suggests gatekeeping. So mm. is that a good quick summary yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do have a question. Um, and I'm gonna try to ask this in uh, uh, very carefully, but how so obviously you studied in in this. Uh, and I know that you are a woman. And so like, how beyond just like the research of, of how this has affected women? Can, do you have personal stories uh, oh, yeah. that you'd be willing to share or, or something that um maybe maybe the question i'm asking is also like how did you get so um interested in in this particular topic yeah so um i became interested in women's history when i was an undergraduate and one of the reasons i became interested in women's history is because i didn't find very many women in my history textbooks and women weren't appearing and yet I knew there were women there. And so I got very interested in telling women's stories and wanting to learn more about women. And as I went on to graduate school, um, I, got, I started University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill the same time my husband started his seminary degree at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And we immediately began to see, um, you know, we were in complementarian circles at the time where we still would adhere to male, male authority. But at the same time, it hadn't been applied in the way that we began to see it. And we began to see great disparities. Like my husband, you know, one of the very first things that he realized was he had a friend, uh, a woman who was, um, you know, getting the same degree as him. And she, whereas he got a discount on his tuition because he was ordained, um, she didn't. And it was simply because she wasn't ordained, but she couldn't be ordained because she was in a Southern Baptist tradition. 
And so he actually wrote a seminary paper, even you know before we were at all with this, he wrote a seminary paper on advocating for ordination of women simply on this economic disparity level. You know, that there, that this, uh, a woman trying to get the same degree to not be, she wasn't trying to be a senior pastor. She was just trying to, she actually wanted to go into chaplaincy, um, into hospital chaplaincy. And so, you know, he was like, why are we not ordaining her? <laughs> um, and so we begin to notice things like that, that these had that by not allowing women to be ordained, um, to be in these spaces that it caused it caused real hardships for women who were called by God and felt called by God um, to go into these areas. And this is at the same time that I have begun this research, you know, area in women's history. And I begin to realize that the way conservative evangelicals um, argued that women were supposed to be under male authority weren't any different from the arguments or were similar to the arguments that were made in cultures that were not Christian um, to keep women under male authority. And that intrigued me and disturbed me. And that was probably sort of the beginning, I think probably that conflation of his world and my world and me beginning to see how similar the arguments at his seminary were to the non-Christian cultures that I was studying and they both treated women exactly the same, that was probably my beginning point. So we've heard a little bit about, you know, where things are hopefully shifting from. Right. I have seen, and I'm sure you have seen, there are female voices who are emerging and leading over the past few mm -hmm. years as a result to gaining their voice on social media. So can you just tell us a few of these, these women that you've noticed? Oh, gosh, um, there's all sorts. I mean, you can think with Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie um, and Jen Hatmaker. These are some of the early ones. But you can also think about women in conservative, more conservative spaces like Christine Kane and even Beth Moore. So, you know, th these these women who have powerful followings on Twitter as well as on Instagram, you know, some women are more. Um, uh, you know, if you, I mean, you can find all sorts of people on Instagram you can think about Allie Worthington and you can think about Kat Armstrong and I mean, just all sorts of people too. So we have all of these different spaces where women are able to get, um, to get a great deal of attention to their message. And what's interesting about these spaces is that they aren't controlled by anyone. There is no, there's anybody can start an Instagram account and um, start building a following. And I mean, there, there is some scariness to this because I've watched a lot of platforms say a lot of things that you're like, oh, I wish there were some safeguards on this. But at the same time, um, you also find a lot of people who would not be able to use their gifts of teaching outside of these platforms. Um, and so there, I mean, it's, so it's just amazing how social media has really brought down the gatekeepers, especially in regards to women's voices, as well as people, non-white people who in the U.S. have been kept out of these spaces as well. So, yeah, so those are a few, I can keep naming women, but those are some that I think, you know, I mean, Beth Moore is just incredible. She has almost a million Twitter followers. Yeah. And that puts her at a much more powerful position than most of the male leaders within the SBC and within, you know, in, within conservative evangelical spaces. So. Yes, I, I, um, 
watching Beth more has been, mm-hmm. um, it is its own master class, you know, just yes. watching how she engages and watches how uh-huh. she, she cares for people. It's not just that she mm-hmm. is presenting something, but she cares for people well. Right. And so I know that, I know that she she'll refer to herself as aunt or auntie, you know, and right. But I like, when I watch her, there is just this longing in me to like, just to be like, you are, you're pastoring these people. You are shepherding these people. And gosh, yeah. Like, boy, I would just, there's something in me that just wants to acknowledge, you know, and, and give respect to where respect is very much due. Mm -hmm. Um, and she is doing it with, with an, I mean, people who have the same kind of accounts with the same kind of followers that Beth Moore does typically tend to, um, operate in a way that you think there's someone else running this account who is just who's just quote tweeting this human, you know, they're like, that guy once said this interesting thing and I'll put it out there and tell him I did my, I did my job today. But, but Beth is there and she is vulnerable and she Mm -hmm. is, um, she's welcoming you into her life and into her faith and allowing people to walk with her as she is walking through. Yes. And that is, I mean, it's, it is incredible because it's, you know, I don't know what kind of support team she has, but it is incredible because that is a huge, huge ministry. And to be doing Mm -hmm. it with the kind of pushback that she's received and through the different trials that she's had, it is, I mean, it is. No, it's yeah, you're right. Of incalculable value. Right. It's incredible. But um, there is difficult, like this difficult aspect to holding the mic, you know, to hold where if you, and in, in the past, it would feel like if you didn't say what the people in charge of you want you to say, your mic's just going to get cut off. Yes. Um, they'll just start playing the music over you and just, you know, put out the shepherd's yeah. crook and yoink you off stage. <laughs> but because the platform, social media platforms are open to women who aren't there with like book deals involved and there aren't speaking engagements to be canceled. It just widens the road for Mm -hmm. topics which can be discussed and subjects which can be addressed in more challenging ways. And I I sort of wonder, um, because the first, in the first few people that you named who were early voices, you had Jim Hatmaker and Rachel L. Evans and- and Sarah Bessie. Yeah. yeah, but for sure, like I think about, I mean, I I watched in particular Jen Hatmaker have a voice and then have her mic unplugged. Um, yeah. And because she crossed a line. Yes, and so um, there's when you touched a little bit about that with when you said you know like there's no rails. What did you say? There's no safeguards safeguards how can women be using their voice in a we're all very excited to use our voice and to have the opportunity because the opportunity right. is there but what what kind of wisdom should we be yeah. concerned about 
No, this is actually a very good, and I, you know, my my other job that I don't talk about as much on these things is I'm, um, you know, I'm my main job <laughs> is I'm a associate dean of professional development for graduate students, and so one of the things I talk with them about is social media, and how to because on the one time it's it's this great valuable tool, um, it allows you to make connections with scholars that otherwise you wouldn't have any, you know, you would never be able to be in front of. And you can talk to them on Twitter and they usually talk back. Academics are really friendly on Twitter. Um, uh, and so, you know, so it allows you to create these relationships. But yet at the same time, once you say something on social media, you've said it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you delete it um, because, you know, chances are, or possibly somebody screenshot it. And you're not you're not going to take that back. I mean, you can minimize it and you can walk back it, you know, which is actually why I very rarely delete tweets. I, I'll delete them like if I make a mistake in it and I like tweet it out and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's stupid. <laughs> then I'll delete it and redo it. But even now, you know, I'm nowhere near clo close to Beth Moore. But often what I'll see is already like 33 people saw it, even though it was a matter of like 30 seconds or something yeah. like that. And so it's like, you know, I don't think. Anyway, so it seems to me it's almost pointless to delete tweets um, because somebody they've already seen them. And so it and that's something we always have to remember. Um, and so you've got to figure out that what you say is what you want to say. And that um, and that you need to frame it in a way that like, for example, if you're not sure about something frame it in a way that you're asking questions like I'll often preface it. I'm like, hey, I like to think aloud on Twitter. And I'm thinking about this and this is why I'm thinking. And so that kind of puts a little bit of distance because you're not saying this is where I stand. I will not be moved. Right. Um, but you're saying, let's talk about this. This is a conversation. You know, I don't necessarily. So you have to learn how to phrase things to give yourself some wiggle room. Not that you don't need to be inconstant about things. And like me, I mean, there's some things that I'll be like, you know what? I'm not budging on this issue. Like Christian, like, you know, complementarianism is patriarchy. There we are. I, I have no qualms about that. I've thought a really long time about it. I put a lot of investment into it. And I am about 99.9% .9 positive that I'm absolutely right on that. So, you know, I'm fine with putting those things out. But a lot of other things, uh, you know, that maybe I'm not sure about or might um, keep people from hearing me. I mean, that's what's really important. You've got to think about where your audience is. And my husband actually said something very helpful to me. He said, you know, you don't have to speak into everything, just speak where you're needed. And that's been my good rule because, you know, social media, you have, oh, do I need to talk in this conversation? Or maybe I can go talk in this conversation. And the fact is, is that none of us can be experts on anything, mm. on everything. And sometimes if we talk in too many spaces, we're going to lose the audience that we really want. So who do you want to talk to? I mean, that's the first question on social media. Who are you talking to? And if you want to keep talking to them, then how do you keep connecting with them? Yeah. And so it doesn't mean that you can't talk about controversial things. I'm actually all for that. But you need to gauge it in a way that you don't lose your audience, that you that you get them to come with you instead of just making them shut off. Yeah. If that, you know, I'll stop talking. I talk a yeah, lot. No, that, no. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's Yeah. We can talk a lot. I see all the all the audio. Um, no, but, uh, but so uh, one of the next questions is is really in that uh, space of 
how do you not just enter a space where now women are permitted to speak, right? Like mm-hmm. just, uh, and, and just talk, but how do you actually affect change? And, and what yeah. is not just the opportunity for change, but how do we, you know, effectively see change in the church with, uh, with the ability yeah. now to, to speak on places like Twitter and, and social media. Right. Um, you've got to make connections. You've got to get your voice into spaces that will have an impact. Now, I mean, I say this, this doesn't mean you only talk to important people because um, social media is changing how we define important people and it's changing how we define. And really on social media, ordinary people can be just as powerful a voice. I mean, in some ways it's really the equalizing sort of thing. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. amazing. As a historian, it's fascinating um, the way that people can maneuver and talk to people that they've never been able to before. And it's just really fascinating to me. Um, So I think you, but by important, I think that what I really mean is, is strategic. Like, you need to get into places where your audience is. Like take for example, um, when I first was approached about publishing the banking of biblical womanhood, you know, the whole story actually evolved on social media, the way I made all these connections, which I wasn't intending to do. It was because I was writing on Patheos. And that is what got me the attention of people that led to the making of biblical womanhood. And so it was all a social media. I mean, it's really fascinating even thinking about what how it happened with me. But when I was approached about it, it was like, who am I talking to? And I was talking to evangelical Christians in conservative churches, which means I needed to publish with somebody who reached those audiences. Mm. And by doing that, it n- enabled me you know, then people in those spaces began to read it and began to, you know, engage with me. And so it's thinking like with social media, thinking about that strategically, who, how can you get into spaces on social media that your audience will hear you? Um, And so, you know, there's different answers to that for everyone because of who, but it's also, you can, you know, I, I like, I like strategy. I like thinking through things. And it's, you know, this is something you can plan. You can get on Twitter. You can look around, see where people are, see who the conversations are. And then you can learn how to start entering into conversations and spaces that you're interested in. Um, And so, uh, but that also requires you to be in a place where those people will listen to you. So you have to build, you know, you, some people see Twitter as a, adversarial tool, you know, go in there. I get to say all the things that I wouldn't ever say to anybody's face. And you're just going to end up being blocked by tons of people. They're not going to, you know, I mean, some people think that's really fun. They like to block people. Um, I very rarely block people. I just mute them. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> so I won't tell you how many people I have muted. It gives me a lot of peace. Um, and it also keeps them from, you know, tweeting that I've been blocked thing. Um, yeah. They have no idea that I've muted them. So yeah. anyway, is that, I may have gotten a little bit off. Track. No, is that helpful? No, yeah. that is, that's okay. very helpful. Yeah. I, I think I would, I want to ask a follow-up kind of just in this vein, what would your encouragement be inside mm-hmm. of, of this to women looking who maybe, maybe haven't necessarily identified yeah. that like they have something that's worthy to share, but then also to those who do have something and are struggling to 
don't know. I mean, we heard from Heather Thompson Day that, you know, years yeah. ago, there was this like, I don't think I can do this anymore. And then it was, you know, she says two weeks before a big break, you know, uh, in yeah. social media. And so what would your encouragement be to those who might be listening? Right. Yeah. No, my encouragement is, is that um, social media has brought down the gatekeepers. You know, it really, really has brought down the gatekeepers. Um, I mean, take, for example, you know, it used to be that in order to get a book published, that you would have to, um, you know, you would, you would have the way you demonstrated that other people would read it was by the connections that you had in the spaces of people who would encourage other people to read it, right? And so what that usually meant, like, let's say Lifeway, um, which often had the stranglehold and on, um, you know, on conservative churches, uh, how would you get them? Well, you would have to have people who Lifeway respected endorse you to do it which means that you would have to not only get connected with these people, which for women usually meant white male leaders, um, you would have to get, and you would also though have to play it by their rules. You know, you would, I mean, think about Rachel Held Evans who got banned um, for using, can I say a word? I don't know how, what we do on here. You know, you she can got, say it. okay. She got banned for using the word vagina. <laughs> In, in in her in one of her books and and so you know it, it and and wasn't being published by you know wouldn't be allowed to be sold in, in Lifeway anymore and so those types of things used to happen to women all the time where they would get you know and Jen Hatmaker I mean this happened to Jen Hatmaker too you know where they got pushed out and so but with social media this is less likely to happen um, because, you know, like think Jen Hatmaker, think Rachel Held Evans, um, they still maintain social media platforms. They had other avenues to continue talking to people. And when they went to go publish their books, they weren't being turned away because Lifeway wasn't going to let their book sell in their store because they had all of these other people. And I've seen Heather Thompson Day, you know, she talks about this too. She says, you know, it's your community that sells books. It's not authors that sells books. It's the community. And on Twitter, you can create a community. I know, you know, that uh, that Desiring God article, if I could say the name, that is so popular this week that everybody is talking about. I think there is a lot of fear within it. And the fear is that they see women breaking through the gatekeeper and influencing other women. And so they're trying to instill fear and say, the internet is not a godly place. One of the communities that I've entered into on Twitter is the weird Christian Twitter, which is, I, you know, was a really interesting sort of group. And what I have found there is an amazing community of people spread all throughout the, the world really, it's not just disembodied voices talking to disembodied heads. I mean, they get to know each other and they actually start having gatherings in person and meeting each other because they've created these strong friendships on social media. So this isn't just a virtual world. This is a, this can be a real world. Now, I mean, you have to be careful. You don't want to spend all your time there, but it is something, it is something that can be healthy when, when used in moderation and when used in you know, in building healthy friendships and healthy communities. And those healthy communities are just as healthy as one-on-one -on -one 
friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, I mean, think about I me. Mean, this is just a crazy art, art, argument. I mean, think about pen pals, um, people who had these amazing friendships over years and all they did was write letters to each other and may have not met or, ever met each other in person. And Christians talk about these, you know, these great friendships that develop. I mean, how is that any different than what we see going on social media? I guess the encouraging is that this can be a place to make real connections. It often does take time. And I know I see people all the time who are like, I'm never going to get published because I have to have at least a following of a thousand people. That can be hard, you know, to get. But one of the things to do is you can also learn how to do it. You can watch other people. I mean, that is how I figured out what to do on social media. I watched people. I watched how they engaged. I watched, and I really wasn't, you know, the funny thing is I really wasn't trying to build a platform. I was just interested because it it was fascinating to me. And also in my role as graduate director, my job was to help teach graduate students how to do this. Mm. So I was watching, I was mostly doing academic. I was watching academics and like figuring out how people started building these relationships, you know, which would lead to like conference presentations. So that's what I was doing. And I kind of started to learn how to do it. It's a skill. You can learn it. And so, I mean, that's the thing is that if you think about it from that sense, instead of being like, oh, I'm not any good at this, you can be like, well, how can I learn to do more? And so one of the things I learned early on, and I think this was started by women, I haven't actually investigated it, but I see women do it all the time is, you know, they do um, Friday hellos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sarah Bessie does this all the time. That's who I actually was watching and learned how to do it. And then I started seeing a lot of other people where on Fridays they stop and they say hello to all their new followers. And I actually started doing this, you know, when I was getting like around three or 4,000 followers, I started doing this. And what I would find is every time I did a Friday, hello, I would automatically get 20, 25 new followers, which was interesting, you know, just by saying, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. And it was, and you don't have to put a lot of thought in it, but it was a strategy I would have never used before, but I saw other women doing it. And I was like, huh, let me try this and see what happens. And I tried it. And I was like, Whoa, I just got all these new followers. This is interesting. So I would, you know, so you can, you can learn how to do this. Um, And then even if you're never going to gain a really huge platform, you can make meaningful relationships with people who will teach you new things and that you can become connected. So it doesn't, you know, it may not, success doesn't mean becoming, you know, getting a following like Beth Moore. Yeah. Success may also mean meeting new people and developing deep relationships that grow you as a person and support you. That's successful. Mm. So I think it's also, you know, success doesn't look the same for every person. And we've got to remember that. Yeah, I think another and and this isn't specific to to women or women on social media or women Mm -hmm. in ministry or in church or whatever, but just. You know, one, one thing that I have found is even if it doesn't, you know, even if it doesn't have, I don't get 20 new followers, but it is just enjoyable is to ask people to give you their stories because people want to, they have stories. And so like Mm -hmm. social media is not just a place for you to go inform the world of all the things that you know. Right. Yes. It's, it's a place to go meet people and to learn about them. And if you went into a, into a party or into a meeting and you were like, you were like, I will only talk about myself and my beliefs the entire time. 
I also yes. will not be accepting any follow-up questions. <laughs> people, will be like, people will be like, can you, nobody invite that person. That person's the worst. They don't listen to me. They don't care anything about me. And I'm, you know, they're fine, I guess, for once a year, but not a, they're not anybody I'm going to stick with. Um, that is such a great point. That is such a great point. Uh, you know, I, I've couched that. I always tell people to be friendly on Twitter. And being friendly is not monopolizing the conversation. Yeah. And so, I mean, no, you are dead right. Uh, it's funny to me though, that a lot of um, a lot of men get away with that on Twitter. A lot of white men get away with that on Twitter. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's like, why do they get away with that? But, um, but they have a different, very different interaction with, you know, if you think about Beth Moore, I mean, that's one of the reasons why is because she interacts with people yeah. and she leaves comments and she doesn't leave comments for everyone. And how could she, right. but you know, she will leave comments and she will act and she'll call them by name. Yeah. And I mean, and it's just wonderful. Um, and so I, you're exactly right. And, and I mean, and that's how you can create those meaningful relationships too, is by caring about people. Yeah. Um, you know, but yeah. I think the, the the men that you talk about who are just saying things and they don't engage and they don't, they just say it and they run away. Like those are the people who I think are, they have somebody else managing their account and that, and, yeah. they're not, and they're not like, I mean, what's, what's the point? They're not doing ministry there. They're just doing marketing there. I don't know. Yep. It's, yep. they're not, it's not a win as far as ministry is concerned. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. You know, one of the things that I've started doing some on my Twitter is because I heard from a lot of people because we're at an extremely small church, very, very small church. And I had conversations with people about how hard it was. And I'm very concerned about pastor's wives. And I heard a lot of people, you know, very discouraged. So I started running sort of like on, you know, on Sundays and Wednesdays, I'll give like little snapshots of our very small church. Mm. And I have received such a, you know, people who, you know, put, call behind the scenes will text me, DM me or something and just say, thank you for that. I've been so discouraged um, because, you know, we only have like 30 people coming. And I was like, what, do, why are we doing this? And then they were like, and then I saw your church. <laughs> just yeah. about, and I realized, you know, that it still matters uh, yeah. because a person matters to God. And so ministry to one person is ministry. That's just as significant. I mean, what did we hear from Jesus going out and finding the one she, I mean, we, we don't interpret that for ourselves, that that is important going out and finding those people who won't go to any other church and you, you are ministering to them. And that's just as important. And so that was, you know, one of the things it's like, how can we encourage people um, in hard spaces by sharing with them the hard spaces of our lives. Yeah. And I really believe that the, that the, I mean, we're coming off the, the mega church mm -hmm. era. And I really I do so. believe, <laughs> I do believe that the future of the church is much smaller. I yeah. mean, even, and if you look at, I mean, Jesus spoke to the masses, but he he walked with a small number, a smaller community. Yeah. And, um, and along the way he interacted with, with strangers. So mm -hmm. he was open to interactions with people who are coming in and out of his life. And in the same yes. way, 
online, you can speak to the masses. You can interact with people who are just coming in and out. And then you can build smaller communities. Mm-hmm. And, and you can, so you can do just what um, the same kind of model that Jesus did. And I right. really do hope that that training ground impacts the, um, our, the way that we do in-person ministry. I really do. Yeah. Hope. And I think yeah. people are desiring um, less mass ministry and more depth. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so in uh, so in October in 2018, this report came out by Reverend Eileen uh, Campbell Reed. Um, and it examined Christian denominations in the US and found that at that in 2016, 20.7% of US professional clergy were women, up from 2.3% mm-hmm. in 1960. And I'd be interested to know how how the pandemic impacted these numbers because of how hard women were hit by job loss and unemployment. Right. Um, I'd be I'd be interested um to know if those numbers were as hard hit. It is possible that maybe they weren't because the nature of ministry positions is a little more flexible than your average Mm -hmm. job. So maybe maybe it wasn't, but we have seen an increase in women in ministry. Um, I have seen online, I've been in conversations with people who are, who have been staunch, staunchly opposed to women in ministry or for women in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had someone follow me who was, um, this guy followed me who was just everything I tweeted. He was like, that is so incredible. That is so insightful. Um, and like just picking up what I was laying down and I saw him on, on a reply to a, a, to Beth Moore in an uncharitable manner. And, and I DM'd him and I said, listen, what you said there is not okay with me. You have, you have replied to me over the past few weeks that you really respect what I'm saying. And I have like, you should know if, if you're listening to me and you say that you don't believe, he told me, I don't believe that women should be in ministry. I don't believe that women should have a voice over men. I said, well, you should know, first off, I am pursuing ordination. But also, secondly, I am, if you have told me on a daily basis that you are gaining from what I am tweeting, you are learning from a woman already. Yep. So men come into into social media spaces, even men who say they don't want to learn from women. It's not appropriate. It's Mm -hmm. not God's way. And then they sit and learn from women. Yes. This is not, this is, this is a good thing. But in that conversation, he, he said, you know, like he hadn't meant to offend me and he hadn't realized. And I said, I just, you know, and he, he apologized profusely. And I said, you know, I'm not coming to challenge your theology. I'm coming to say that the behavior, the way that you, you interact with people needs to be different than what I just saw. Um, And we don't ever have to agree on theology but we, we do need to be on the same page on the law of love. Yes. Excellent. But we've also seen like churches ordaining women that had not previously ordained women. 
And we see, I hear pastors from traditions that don't ordain women Mm -hmm. saying, actually, we're going to start moving women into leadership. And previously we wouldn't have given them leadership positions at all. And now we're going to, we're moving towards it. They might say, I'm not, I'm still not sure about ordination, but, but there is this shift happening. Mm -hmm. And I see it as influenced by how things happen online. Yeah. Um, Do you think that like, that it's just this, it'll just be this slow continuation of what happens online and impacting our in-person experience or our in-person models of ministry? Um, Or do you think um, that it, like, is it possible that women will just get siloed into social media? Like, well, that's Mm -hmm. fine because it's not on the physical stage at a physical location. So, um, you know, historians are always careful about predicting the future. We're much better (laughs) about interpreting the past. Um, But past patterns, unfortunately, are not positive for us. Past patterns, if they're predictive of future behavior, suggest that women are going to get siloed because that's what's happened over and over again. We have these avenues, these moments where it looks like, you know, I mean, these, these for different reasons in different ways. However, at the same time, we've never had anything like social media before. I mean, the connections, the global connections that it has allowed, um, I mean, there is, there is not anything comparable to what we see going on right now. Um, the closest maybe comparable thing might be women in the mission field for Christianity, mm. at least. And what's interesting about that is that women continue to be a major force in the mission field. Um, I think they've been more siloed than they were in the past uh, because of the influence of uh, this very restrictive complementarianism that is a new thing that emerged in the late 20th century and really picked up speed in the early 21st century. Um, That has limited women on the mission field in ways that they hadn't ever been before. Um, But at the same time, we still see women very, very active on the mission field. So that pattern might suggest that there may be some hope for what we see on social media. Um, We also have the presence of women. I mean, I've said this, in fact, Denny Burke uh, accused this of being my secret plan. And I'm like, well, I don't know if it's very secret, Um, but it is true. The way that you, you know, oftentimes people who are very anti-women preaching have just never heard women preach. You know, and once you hear a woman preach, it sometimes changes things because it's really hard to say that woman's not called um, once you really hear a woman preach. And so I think, and so, you know, one of the things I suggested that Denny Burke said was my secret plan was I said, you know, if, even if you're in a church that doesn't allow women to preach, uh, advocate to get women teaching, put them in Sunday school spaces where they teach men. And what you begin to see is men start learning from them. And when men start learning from them, they realize that women can do this and are called to do this. This is one of the reasons why the Gospel Coalition keeps having to come out with these articles that say it's not about ability. It's about God's plan, you know, because it's because women are so clearly called in these areas. And so they keep having to come back and say it's not about. Yes, of course, women can do these things, but God says they can't. And you're like, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, especially since women did all these things in the Bible. 
so yeah so anyway so i think um i think that social media has opened spaces and allowed that example to be more prevalent of women teaching and preaching um i think at the same time we have had the church two movement the you know absolute explosion you know the mars hill demise public you know collapse as well as a lot of other things and in some ways even donald trump i mean you know for as many people who still support him a whole lot of other people were like what in the world just happened and you know, like how did we get here and don't want to ever get there again and so i think maybe the convergence of social media along with with the space provided by social media along with dissatisfaction with the evangelical hierarchical model could lead to lasting change. Mm. I hope so, so. Uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. That's my best prediction for you, you know. You know, as a historian I would say, you know, what Kristen Dumay ended her book with what is done can be undone. As a historian things can be undone. We see that. So that's what I'm hoping. Me too. Um, we, we generally ask, well, we always ask um, our guests about failure, but oh, yeah, I don't, yeah. about a time that they were trying to do social ministry well and it, and it went poorly, right? But I almost want to ask you more about challenge because I know that you've had pushback. Um, yeah, sure. And, and I that think, can be failure. <laughs> yeah, it can, go, it can go badly. You can poorly perform yeah. in a challenge. I know, I, I think that we can, that women can expect a level of pushback inside the mm -hmm. church or from inside, from inside the church, from, from other Christians. Yep. And that's particularly hard. And I'm in a denomination that ordains women, that supports women, affirms women. And so when I get pushback, I have people come and, you know, just, you're just like, who, I, I can't do ministry. Like, okay, I'm going to go do my ministry and not worry about I, it. Like, yeah. You know, but there are women who, who are, trying to carve out spaces that aren't there for them and right. they will get that pushback. So can you talk to us about a time that you faced pushback, pushback yeah. how it impacted you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you about the, um, I think, you know, I, I'm not great. I'm not a person who usually loses my temper. I'm really not. I'm a pretty even tempered person. Um, um, uh, that gets tested with teenagers, but you know, I still am a pretty even tempered person. And uh, when I have what I consider uh, tweeted when I am emotional on Twitter, mostly has been when something has happened to somebody else mm. and I have stepped out and I'm like, no, this is not okay. This is why it's not okay. And so mostly, at least one time though, I lost my temper over the way somebody treated me. <laughs> and it was a very public moment because it was with the editor of Christianity Today. <laughs> And so I don't know if you saw that whole exchange, um, but he put out an extremely uncharitable tweet about how he wasn't even going to bother reading my book um, because essentially it wasn't worth reading. And I was so angry with him, not because he said that, but because he used his position of power as being an editor of a major Christian influential thing to say that when he hadn't even read my book. Mm. I mean, I just thought that was completely irresponsible of him. 
and I lost my temper. I call, I, you know, I essentially, I tweeted back at him almost immediately. Um, I don't remember actually exactly what I said. And, you know, and I would say that was probably, that wasn't something I kind of go back and forth on. I'm like, should I have done that? I don't know. I mean, I did tweet at him in anger. Um, at the same time though, I feel like what he did was wrong. And I will, you know, still say that I think what he did was wrong. Um, but I did delete that tweet and I used that moment to, first of all, explain to my followers. I'm like, look, you know, I lost my temper with him. This is why I lost my temper. However, I still regret what I said. And one of the things I always promise you on Twitter is I will tell you when I'm wrong. Mm And, and so, and that's actually was a really good moment for me. In fact, I got a whole lot of people, they were like, nobody ever says they're wrong on Twitter. And it suddenly, you know, it was like, this is a real, you know, we need to say we're wrong more. And, and so I was able to use that um, as, you know, it actually became sort of a powerful teaching moment for me. Um, And it also, you know, and it also helped me remember that people are watching everything that I do. And, and so it really is important. And, and I've thought about that. I'm like, I don't want to ever treat somebody the way that they treated me. Mm. And, and so I think about that, you know, in my, and so some of the practices I've stopped doing on Twitter is I don't negatively quote people anymore. You know, I don't pull up what they've said and be like, oh my gosh, can you believe, you know, I just don't do that anymore. Um, because it, it, it doesn't seem, it doesn't, for me, at least, um, it, I know what it feels like when somebody does that to me and it's usually not a good feeling. And and so I'm just like, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. And so I think we can learn those types of, um, I have learned that I want to act like a Christian in all spaces and that it's really important on social media because I am not a disembodied head. I am a real person. And all of those people I'm interacting with are real people made in the image of God. And we need to treat them as such. Yeah. 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 I do think sometimes with the, with the quote tweeting um, people's, even, even, even the ones that you would suspect are, are not, their accounts are not representative of a person. They're representative of a company Mm -hmm. or a, you know, a team representing them. Right. If people are showing people who they are, like people can see it without me jumping on. Mm. Um, If they're trying to sink their own ship, I just let them go down. I don't jump on their ship to try to help them go down faster because I'm going to go down with them. No. Yeah. Same thing with subtweeting. I really try hard not to subtweet anymore. Mm. (laughs) Because it's the same sort of, you know, it's very passive aggressive. I mean, sometimes I've done it a couple of times since in a funny way, yeah. <laughs> you know, where it's been, but I try, I, again, I, I try not to, I, I'll positively quote tweet people be like, read this, yeah, you know, but I'm not going to do it in the negative sense. And so the mm. same with subtweets. Yeah. That's so good. Beth, is there times or a time I'm I'm hoping there's multiple times, but uh, just in where you saw that you, your efforts with specifically with the book and and that work, mm-hmm. um, but you have seen positive change. Oh gosh! Uh, and just being able to to see that like 
that work is not only needed, but it's, it's impacting uh, in a very necessary way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I tell people all the time that I didn't write this book because I wanted a platform or I wanted to ever be in this space. Um, you know, I have a really good job <laughs> that mm. I really like and don't want to leave. You know, I'm really happy to stay in academia and people not know who I am. Um, I wrote a book because I felt it needed to be written and I felt women needed help. And I have received, you know, the encouragement behind the scenes, the emails that I get, the DMs I get, the, you know, Instagram um, messages I get from women telling me that this has helped them is just been overwhelming. And so, you know, for every negative bit, just knowing that, you know, that I've helped people and the best ones that I get as a, you know, I'm, I'm in ministry. I've been in ministry for 24 years with my husband. And so some of my favorite messages are the people who tell me that they had walked away from the church and they read my book and now they were going back mm. and because they saw that the gospel wasn't what they had been taught that it was, that it wasn't the world of conservative evangelicalism and that Jesus was better. And those are the ones that mean the most to me because that's, you know, people said they saw Jesus in my book. And I'm like, that's it. That's all. And so those, those, I think are the most important, um, the things that mean the most. So. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, uh, any other thoughts, Sarah? I'm, I'm good. This has been really good. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I like, I like the, I like what you told me you were doing with this. I was like, this is really, I love this. Thinking about how women are able to use social media. And even, it's not just women. It's all people who have been sort of marginalized and kept out and they can use social media in positive ways to transform the church. Yeah. Yeah. And transform the church online and in person. Yes, both ways. Yeah. Yeah, I I love conversations like these, and, and I think that all of our conversations have been this way, where that's the point of what we're doing. Just can yeah. we explore? And, and as you were, you were, it's really tied to right. We don't want to say this is the way forward, or, or this is the the way how to do it, but rather this is a way that ministry is happening. Right. And so to to see that social media is the platform where a lot of ministry is happening. And there are so many ways that that can be done. Yes. Um, whether on social media or leveraging social media yes. um, to do that in a, a non online space. And so um, exactly right. Thank you so much for, for your time today. And, and just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, I, I hope to, to continue to see just the, the positive work um, that's coming out of, of writing this book and doing this research mm-hmm. and uh, just seeing the the way that it can continue to change the church. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. This is good. Well, thank you everybody for listening in. This has been the pocket pulpit and I'm Hector. And actually I I'm going to stop myself because uh, Beth, could you just one more time, just tell people where they can find you online? Oh yeah. You can find me under Beth Ellison Barr. I go by the same name. Um, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. Those are the two places I primarily hang out, but you can also find me on Facebook. Um, so 
anyway, and I'm, I'm pretty, I try to be friendly. <laughs> well, thank you for, for trying. Um, no, I, wow, that sounded so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just, you know, I don't always succeed, but yeah. I try. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I love, I love interacting with people. That's one yeah. of the things that's so fun. So. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we look forward to, to more interactions. Say thank you for tuning in to the Pocket Pulpit podcast. Uh, this has been Hector. Um, we'll see you and Sarah. Yep. Bye. All right. And Beth, have a great day. Thank you. All right. See y'all later. Absolutely. See ya.